Thank you for your word and please now we pray you would speak to us through your word. Show us Jesus, touch our hearts and touch our minds. Amen. Well today we're going to be looking at the dark side of Christmas. The period of Christmas can be very painful. There's more domestic violence and more family breakups at Christmas than at any other time of the year. It's that period when people can most feel their isolation and loneliness. And of course, if there are people we have loved who are no longer with us, then it can be intensely painful. We tend to focus on the joy, the birth of the baby, the angels, the shepherds and the wise men, all those things in the first song that we sang. But that first Christmas also brought immense pain. And today we read about the slaughter of the innocents. Alison was going to show um, her class of six-year-olds the film The Nativity. She thought she was on fairly safe ground, but when she started looking at it, she realised that it actually begins at the end, with the soldiers preparing to go to Bethlehem to murder the children. And she suddenly realised, I can't show this to them. Herod, you see, is not going to tolerate any possible threat to his throne. So he sends his soldiers to murder all the baby boys who are two years or old or under in Bethlehem and its region. Now, not that many children would have been killed. We're not talking about a big population here. There would probably have been, I don't know, about 12 children. But if that is the case, then that first Christmas brought utter devastation to 12 families. And only those who have lost a baby or a child will really understand their grief and brokenness. And just because it happened a long time ago, far away, at a time when life was harder and more brutal, it would not have been any easier. And the Bible does not gloss over this incident. In fact, Matthew specifically draws our attention to it, and he quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. You see, Jeremiah tells how, and I'm really grateful to Lionel for doing, for taking us through these, uh, through through the patriarchs. He'd obviously had a look beforehand and seen who's mentioned in the story. Rachel, that wife of Jacob, who is perceived by many to be the mother of the Israelite nation weeps for her children, says Jeremiah, and that is the people of Israel, as they go into exile. But Matthew tells us that when Rachel was weeping, she was weeping for something, for someone else. She was weeping for these children mercilessly cut down and for their families. And she is inconsolable. So why? Why would God not only allow this to happen, but in this case, to actually to be the direct cause of it? If Jesus had not been born, those 12 children would have lived. If Jesus, if the wise men had not gone to Jerusalem and spoken to Herod, those children would not have died. And on the surface, their death didn't do anything. Their death didn't make the world a better place. Their death didn't save Jesus. It appears to be an exercise in brutal, utter pointlessness. 
Joseph had been warned in a dream to get away. Why hadn't God given dreams to the other fathers? Why hadn't God spoken in a dream to Herod? Why hadn't God stopped the soldiers? He'd done it in the Old Testament. He could easily have done it here. Well, I'm not going to try and explain why there is suffering in this world. I'm going to leave that to um, Andrew Buttress um, for uh, a couple of weeks' time on Sunday evening when Andrew will be helping us leading our thinking in why does God allow tsunamis, um, uh, uh, the big subject. But there are several things I'd like us to remember. And the first thing is this. Evil happens, evil things happen when people refuse to offer that which they have or place that which they have under the authority of God. It was not God who murdered the children. Herod murdered the children because he had power and authority, but he refused to place that power and authority under the authority of God. He had power and authority, and he wanted to hold on to it. It's very much on form for Herod. When he came to power, he began by annihilating the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews. He slaughtered 300 court officers. He murdered his wife, Mariamne, her mother, Alexandra, and two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. Five days before he died, he murdered his eldest son, Antipater. And as he died, he arranged for the death of 3,000 of the leading citizens of Jerusalem, which was, thankfully for them, not carried out. So the murder of 12 babies for Herod was all in a day's work. And today, evil things happen because people who have things, power, status, or stuff, will not place them under the authority of God and will hold on to them rather than letting them go. It's easy and it's right to point the finger at a Kim Jong-un, an Assad, or a Mugabe, but we need to examine ourselves here. I'm quoting from a UNICEF document. Each year, about 11 million children die of preventable diseases, often for want of simple and easily provided improvements in nutrition, sanitation, and maternal health and education. More than 50% of these children die at home due to poor access to any health facilities. That's not 12 children. That works out at 30,000 children every day dying because those of us who have are not prepared to place what we have under the sovereignty of God and we try to hold on to it for ourselves. And the brutal fact is that while the global power structures and economic instruments are stacked in favour of the richest populations in the world, it will continue. And it's political suicide, especially in a democracy, for a government to advocate policies 
which disadvantage their own nation in favour of others who are less well off. Woe betides the government which introduces a trade, gov a trade agreement which is advantageous to the other. Woe betides the government which says to others, by comparison with you, we have an amazing health service, partly staffed by experts from your country because we can afford to pay them more than you can, so they come to us. So you are welcome to make use of it, even though our own citizens will suffer. Woe betides the government that said that, because we, you and me, would vote them out. The problem is that evil happens when people who have refuse to place that which we have under the authority of God and grab hold of it. And the second thing here is that God knows. The eternal Son of God did the exact opposite of Herod. He did not cling to power, but he gave up power and he came and lived in the world as one who had no power. He was born in a stable and became a political refugee, an asylum seeker in Egypt. When he came back from Egypt, he lived with his family in Nazareth. Matthew comments, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. It's a difficult quote because we know of no prophet who said that. But the prophets did say that Jesus would live on the edge in an obscure place. And Nazareth certainly qualifies for that. And the reason that God kept Jesus safe now at his birth was because Jesus needed to be able to freely choose as an adult to give up his life. And 33 years later, he did choose to give himself up to death to a death that was far more brutal than those 12 children would have experienced. He had nails hammered into his wrists and his ankles, and he was hung up to die publicly, slowly, and in agony. And as he died, his mother's heart was broken. More significantly in this case, his father's heart was broken. So even if we don't understand why God allows suffering we do know that he knows what it's like. He knows what the parents of those 12 children went through. He knows what some of you have been through. He knows what some unknown parents of some unknown child dying in Bangladesh for lack of clean water are going through. I remember hearing of a man who visited his sick child in a hospice it was the child's birthday and he had brought in a cake. But when he got to the ward, the child was dying. Two hours later, he walked away from the bed of his now dead child, still holding his cake. And he walked past a statue of Jesus on the cross. And in his grief and in his anger, he hurled the cake at the face of Jesus. And then he broke down. It was only later that he realised the significance of what he had done. God knows what it's like 
to you lose a child. Thirdly, we need to hold on and remember that God is in control. It's very clear that God is in control of everything that's happening here. Three times in our few verses, Joseph has a dream which guides him. Three times we read the words, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said. In one sense, this simply deepens the mystery of what is happening here. If God is in control, why doesn't he work in another way? Why doesn't he step in and stop Herod? Why doesn't he step in and strip us of what we have, given that we're not going to choose to give it up voluntarily so that others can live? Well, perhaps he does. But there's also something that brings hope here. The God who is in control is, we're told, a God who loves us who delights in us and desires that we should grow to become the people he made us to be so that he can rejoice in us and we can rejoice in him. And while we do not understand what on earth is going on now, and I'm sure many of you have been there and you've just thought, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? We can still trust him and we can still call out to him. Because God is in control, there may be no answers now, but because God is in control, it means we can still ask the question in trust that there will be an answer then. And fourthly, there is hope. Egypt in the Bible is an enigmatic place. It's the place that God uses to bring refuge to his people. Do you remember another Joseph who lived probably about 4,000 years before the Joseph we've read about here, who, uh, uh, who, who, who Lionel has already mentioned? He was sold as a slave by his brothers and taken to Egypt. Well, that's how it looked at a human level. But from God's perspective, God had actually sent Joseph to Egypt in order to prepare the way for the very people who sold him as a slave to be kept safe through a famine. But Egypt is also the place of slavery and of suffering. The descendants of the very people who sold Joseph as a slave became slaves themselves in Egypt. And Pharaoh, like Herod, would not voluntarily give up power. He certainly would not place that power or authority under the authority of God. So as the numbers of the people of Israel grew, and as they became a political threat to him, Pharaoh did what Herod did. He slaughtered their baby boys. But God saves one child from the slaughter, His name was Moses, and God used Moses to bring his people out of slavery and suffering in Egypt into the freedom of the promised land. And now we are told that God calls this new Joseph to take his son to Egypt, where he will be kept safe. And then Joseph is called to bring Jesus back from Egypt to Israel. And Matthew writes, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. 
Out of Egypt I called my son. Do you see what Matthew is telling us about Jesus? There is hope. Just as there once was a man called Moses, who God used to rescue his people from slavery and suffering, so now another one who is greater than Moses will come and will rescue people from the tyranny of Herod and from the tyranny of evil. He will be called Jesus, says Matthew, because he will save his people from their sins. I've mentioned that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, which speaks of Rachel weeping, weeping for her children. The following verse, Jeremiah 31, 16, states, This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. There is hope. Because of Jesus, sin and death do not have the final word. Sin does not have the final word. You and I can be changed from being like Herod. And I'm afraid to say there's probably far more of Herod in us than we would like to think into becoming like Christ. He really can change us. I know it's hard to imagine because we want to hold on to what we've got and we don't want to place it under the authority of God. But he can change us from being people who grab hold of what we've got and keep it into people who are set free and into people who give and who love. Not because we are told to, not because I'm telling you here from this place to do that, that would make me the biggest hypocrite of all, but because we freely choose to do it and because we freely want to do it. Sin doesn't have the final word, nor does death have the final word. These 12 or so children have often been considered the first New Testament martyrs for Christ, the first of many who explicitly died in his name and who will be resurrected with him. But for those who we have loved, or for ourselves, his promise that all we need to do is turn to him Literally reach out and touch the robe, uh, the hem of his robe. Literally look to him. And we don't know what's happened with those we love who haven't been Christians in this life, but we don't know what's happened maybe in those last few minutes. But we trust them. We trust them into the hands of God. And we have that deep assurance that if we turn to Jesus, there is hope. Death is not the end. We will be resurrected with him. I do hope that you've had a good Christmas. But if it's been painful, be reassured that it's not really about tinsel and mistletoe. It's about the Son of God coming into the darkest places of our world and of our lives. And coming into the deepest hurts of our lives. And saying, I know 
I really do know I'm still in control and there is hope. So may this God of love and of mercy who gave his Son give us his hope, set us free from evil and give us that glorious hope of one day being with him. Amen.